0: Father, we praise you for you are good. For you are holy and you are just. You are gracious and you are merciful. We thank you for gifting us your holy word and your spirit to help us rightly understand your word. We ask for your blessing upon our study of your word. Help it to penetrate our hearts and to bend our wills so that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated, church. You know, there are Christians who are genuinely saved, meaning they, they have eternal reward, but they still live in fear that they are not truly saved. And there are others who are not genuinely saved, Who have no eternal reward, but live in a false belief that they are truly saved. Said in slightly a different manner, one can be saved in Christ without having an assurance of salvation. And equally, one can have assurance of salvation without being saved. Assurance of salvation is important for God's people. It provides great comfort to believers and stimulates a life in them of joyful holiness and unending praise to God. Martin Lloyd Jones comments about what's at stake when assurance is not possessed by the believer, he said, quote, we should all be concerned about our assurance of salvation because if we lack assurance, we lack joy. And if we lack joy, our life is probably of poor quality, end quote. Thus, it is no surprise to us That God wants all who are his to know that they belong to him. That they have full assurance of their salvation. His desire is that every blood-bought child of his would be enthralled and awestruck by the certainty of the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. You know, it's assurance of salvation that is one of the many blessings in Christianity Christians can enjoy the assurance that they have been forgiven forgiven of all and that they will be with Christ forever they can rest assured that their penalty for their sin has been completely paid for by Jesus and that the guilt of their sin has been taken away no, it's this assurance. It's having confidence that we're no longer an enemy of God, but now are a child of God. It is knowing that you are God's, that you are a child of His, that Christ's blood has redeemed you, and His righteousness now covers you. God wants you, beloved, to know that you are His. You know, it is possessing a, a strong understanding, a strong assurance of salvation that believers have a resolve to glorify God and to enjoy Him. So the question this morning is, but how do you know for sure? Uh, how do you have full assurance of salvation? And it's this question that we will unpack this morning as we turn our attention to the closing of the passage that we just read in verses 9 through 12. The title of this morning of this sermon is Full Assurance of Hope. For context's sake, we read from chapter 5, verse 11. That is where the beginning of this third warning in Hebrews began and it concludes in this paragraph that we are in this morning. But since we have spent the last four Sundays in an Advent preaching series in the book of Isaiah, it's important that we now put it all back in context to remember what the context of this letter of Hebrews is all about. Remember the original recipients. These were Jewish believers. And prior to receiving the gospel and committing to belief in Jesus as Messiah, they were formally Jewish in their religious commitments. They are Hebrews, meaning both culturally and in religious background. But these Jews now have embraced Christ as Savior. And from the context, we learn that they have endured much for their faith. And we also learn that they are regressing in their faith. And they're being tempted, perhaps, to leave, Jude- to leave Christianity and return to Judaism. Or some form of Judaism. Perhaps they're being persuaded by others they have seen leave the faith and return to Judaism. Or perhaps they're persuaded by the difficulty it has been in living the Christian life with all the opposition that has come at them. But whatever the reason may be, the author of Hebrews makes it a point to showcase the superiority of Christ. He makes it clear that Christ is superior to anyone and anything in the Old Covenant. He's superior to Moses, to angels, to Aaron, to Joshua, to the high priests. He's also the fulfillment of the entire old system, the the whole system of sacrificial religion that we see throughout the Old Testament. And this is why we have these warnings here in Hebrews. They are meant to to encourage believers to persevere in the faith. And specifically, to exhort these Jewish believers to press on to maturity in Christ. These warnings are means by which believers are preserved by God. One matter of importance that we have studied through and learned in this letter is that your spiritual life in that walk with Christ, that you are either moving forward or you are falling backward. That in your walk, you are never staying the same. And we see the exhortation in this letter that as Christians, we must always be growing, maturing in the faith. That sets some context up for what is going on in this letter. We know this letter is a letter of exhortation. It's written to encourage believers to press on to maturity, which brings full assurance of salvation. And so following this warning that we read again this morning from Hebrews, starting in Hebrews chapter five, verse 11, all the way up to Hebrews chapter six, verse eight, the author now changes focus, and he encourages the recipients of the letter. He doesn't want those who are genuine believers to lose their assurance of salvation. His goal is to direct their attention to Christ so that they would be strengthened in the faith. He's not trying to cause them to doubt their salvation. Rather, he is stirring them up to love and good works. So if you would draw your attention to where we'll begin this morning in Hebrews chapter 6. In verse 9, we read, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I mean, this is on the heels of what he had just written about and what he had just warned about. Look back in your Bibles to the last warning, starting in verse 4 4 through 6. He had just written, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tested, Taste, excuse me, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. He had warned about those, he was speaking of others. He makes this very clear here in verse nine when he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. He redirects the attention of what he is writing to the recipients of this letter of exhortation. He refers to them as beloved. These are the believers to whom he has addressed this letter. But these are also the same believers that he has warned against drifting away by neglecting such a great salvation. We studied that back in chapter 2. These are the same believers that he warned against having an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. That was in chapter 3. These are the same believers that he had warned against hardening their heart to the voice of God. These are the same believers that he had warned against lazy listening and lazy learning and lazy living, which have all caused them to regress in their faith. It is to this very same group of believers that he says here in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's important the way he wrote this. He was very intentional with his words. He says, we feel sure. This means we are confident. We are convinced. We are certain. It's important to note he didn't say, well, we think, maybe, or or we're hoping. He says we have absolute confidence that there is evidence of salvation in you. He said they were certain that there were better things, more specifically things that belong to salvation. And to fully understand what's transpiring here as he writes this, we need to connect verse 9 with its immediate context. Look back to verses 7 and 8, where he gave the illustration. Back in 7 and 8, he said, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Notice this illustration that he had just given. Land receives the blessing of rain. And in response to that rain being given, the land either produces a useful crop, which results in a blessing from God, or it bears worthless things like thorns and thistles resulting in being burned up. Beloved, the same is true about faith. Genuine faith brings forth good fruit and a blessing from God, while counterfeit faith produces bad fruit resulting in the judgment of God the writer of Hebrews here, transitions in verse 9 and uses some very encouraging words. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. These are the same believers who had regressed in their faith, but they still had genuine fruit of salvation. Fruit that the writer of Hebrews wanted to stir up more within them. And so he begins here with a word of encouragement. Do you think, what went through their hearts and their minds when after hearing the strong warning in verses 4 through 6 that they heard, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I mean, to, to hear those words after that strong warning must have been so encouraging. It must have been words that just lifted their spirits. It was encouragement that was meant to stir on, to spur on holiness within them. So what exactly is the author referring to? What is he alluding to here? What, did he have, what had he witnessed in them that gave him such confidence in their salvation? Now I want to stop and ask, were they perfect in their walk? For those of you that have been with us, no. They've been warned over and over again about all kinds of wandering and drifting. Their performance was not perfect. But he sees evidence of genuine faith. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. He says, For God is not unjust." so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Here he speaks of their work and the love that they have shown for God's name. This is of the utmost importance here. He talks about their service to the saints, but that service was fueled by their love for God. Their works were not fueled by fear. They were not fueled by obligation. They were not fueled by trying to earn God's favor. Their works were in line with their love for God's name. In other words, a desire to live for his glory, to bring glory to him in all that they do to rejoice when all attention turns to him and all credit for everything good goes to him. Beloved, this is transformed living. They are new creations in Christ. They are no longer who they used to be. And the work that God has begun in them, he is faithful to complete it. God's love had been poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom he had given them. And now they love the saints because Christ first loved them. They had experienced the love of Christ. That Jesus laid down his life for them. And it was no simple feat. He was tortured and he was murdered he gave his life as a ransom for them he gave his life for theirs and now they are to live by faith in the son of god who loved them and gave his life for them it is this gospel this gospel truth that fuels their good works. And by the way, beloved, it is this same gospel truth that fuels your good works. It is what Christ has done on your behalf. The fact that these believers, these that are being addressed in this letter, that they had a love for God's glory. A love for his name to be exalted testifies that they are genuine believers. Now, I mean, anyone can say that they have a love for God's name and a desire to bring him glory. But words are just that, they're just words. These believers were not only commended for their words, they were commended for action. Like what JC Ryle comments here. J.C. Ryle said, quote, Where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. True faith works by love. It constrains a man to live unto the Lord from a deep sense of gratitude for redemption. It makes him feel that he can never do too much for him that died for him. Being much forgiven, he loves much. He whom the blood cleanses walks in the light. He who has the real lively hope in Christ purifies himself even as he is pure. The faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils End quote. Those who are in Christ, you notice, you see it by their lives. You see it by their service. Good fruit comes from genuine salvation. And good fruit that comes from the working of the Holy Spirit brings further assurance to one's soul of their salvation in Christ. Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. He said, quote, The assured Christian is more motion than notion, more work than word, more life than lip, more hand than tongue. End quote. We see here in verse ten how the author describes how this was demonstrated in their love for God's name. Again, in verse ten, he's talking about. He says, "Your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do." They were active serving other believers within the congregation. Think about it. The the natural man, the person apart from Christ, is only concerned about himself. He is only concerned about what's in it for me. He puts himself first and everything revolves around him. Only A miracle can change him. Divine intervention must take place. And this is exactly what God does in his people. He gifts them with repentance and faith. He grants them the ability to come to Christ to receive salvation as a free gift. The individual who has experienced the new birth, who has the Spirit of God now dwelling within him, is now concerned about the things of God. God's grace has worked mightily within him in transforming him. He has been given a new heart with new desires. Gone are the days being in bondage to selfish desires Now, with a new heart and a desire to bring God glory, the individual has a vested interest in blessing God's people. Now, think about it. Before Christ, many of you did not even consider waking up on a Sunday morning to go to church. If you did, maybe it's because that's what your family was doing or your friends and you just went along with everybody else. But you didn't have a desire, it wasn't that you wanted to be with God's people. As a matter of fact, even as a believer, aren't there Sundays where you struggle? Oh, I could just stay in my warm bed. Oh, I'm not feeling that great. I probably need one more day of rest. Think of all the different excuses that go through our minds of why not to gather. Yet, the grace of God working in us, brings us together week after week. And this is what God had done in these Jewish believers. In the midst of their own suffering, in the midst of their own struggle, they still desired to gather together, to serve one another. They cared for one another. They prayed for one another. They encouraged one another. They had compassion on one another they intentionally gather to stir up love and good works in one another you know this is what god's people are called to do there are no lone rangers in the christian faith we are a community together if you think you are a lone ranger you don't understand the new testament God calls us together as one. The faith is to be lived out together as one. You know, nowhere in the New Testament do we see anywhere that believers are to attend a church on Sunday so that they could hear a sermon and then go home. That is not the model. And however, there are many that do just that in churches. They sneak in late and sneak out early. They come to be ministered to, but not to minister to others. They come to be a consumer and not a servant. That is not a Christian. That is not what the New Testament defines as a Christian Yes, the sermon is one of the primary means of grace that God uses to strengthen and encourage His people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But it's also to encourage them to walk as He walked. If a believer shows up simply to listen to a sermon or or worse yet, to sit on their couch and to watch it online, they are completely missing the work of God that he has called them to walk in. We are not simply to listen to solid preaching or boast in the fact that we are a doctrinally sound church. We are to live it. All the knowledge means nothing if it is not lived out in our lives. Yes, the Bible does say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. But that same passage continues. And Paul writes in the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2 and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved, we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we have been commissioned to walk in those. We are to build one another up in the faith. To edify one another. That same exhortation comes again later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 where we read, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the work that is done as we gather together. Every single believer contributes to the work. Sundays are not passive Times. Every believer is to be engaged actively in serving. Every believer is to be engaged actively in serving. This is something that was witnessed by the author of Hebrews in these Jewish believers. Though they had been drifting, and though there was need to be concerned about that, the Hebrew believers were still serving one another. They understood what biblical fellowship is. I want to ask you about that word fellowship. What does that word mean? What does it mean biblically, not culturally? But what does it mean biblically? Because we have reduced the true meaning of the word fellowship to simply mean hanging out. Anytime that we gather to hang out, we call it fellowship. But is that truly what fellowship means? As we look to the New Testament, fellowship is a time that is centered around our union in Christ. It is a time for intentional mutual edification, That means building one another up, stirring up one another's faith in Christ. Yet we often hear believers call any type of get-together fellowship. Now, I'm not going to go off and say that we cannot get together. Of course, we can get together, and we can get together to watch a sporting event, or we can get together to play games together. That is not a sin. As a matter of fact, that's quite an enjoyable time for believers to get together and to engage in those activities. But to have fellowship is to focus on encouraging one another in Christ. That is the point of the gathering. It's to stir one another's holy affections up for Christ. And this should be one of our primary uses of our time when gathered together on the Lord's Day it is not simply to come and listen to a sermon and sing some songs and to leave, but it has come to be used by God as a servant of God out of a love for His name to encourage the other saints, to give of yourself and to invest in others, to imitate Christ the writer of Hebrews, though his audience is, is waning and they're waning in their fervency, he still commends them and says they're still doing this. They're still serving the saints. This is evidence, fruit, good fruit, of their salvation. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life Because we love the brothers, whoever does not love abides in death. To say you love God, but you don't love his people means you don't truly love God. People say, I love the church, I just can't stand the people. Biblically speaking, the church is the people church is not the walls, it's not the chairs, it's not the room. It is the saints, the believers that have been redeemed by Christ Jesus. Seeing the evidence flow out of our lives of a genuine love for others to serve them and to want to care for them, to want to encourage them in the faith, gives a greater assurance, a greater sense of our assurance that is in Christ. Listen to the way that Paul encouraged the believers in Thessalonica. At the opening of 1 Thessalonians in verse 3, Paul says that he was remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Work of faith and labor of love. This is what is evidenced in every genuine believer. It is the work of faith And the labor of love that validates the believer's assurance. That validates the believer's assurance. Now, let's not get this twisted and get it wrong. The believer's steadfast, immovable assurance is not based upon anything that they do. But upon everything that Christ has done everything that he has accomplished and his continual ministry to this very day of interceding on their behalf that is where assurance comes from comes from the promises of god of what his son has done on our behalf that nothing that we can do can earn the forgiveness of god only the blood of christ can do that That nothing that we can do can fully satisfy the wrath of God. Only the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, can do that. I like what Spurgeon said here. Spurgeon said, quote, Our faith does not cause salvation, nor our hope, nor our love, nor our good works. They are things that attend to it as its guard of honor. The origin of salvation lies alone in the sovereign will of God the Father, in the infinite efficacy of the blood of Jesus, God the Son, and in the divine influence of the Holy Spirit. Good works only validate the assurance that we have been given through Christ Jesus. They testify to the work of God In our lives. J.C. Ryle in his book titled Holiness said this, I bless God that our salvation is nowise depends on our own works. But I never would have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living. End quote. In the same vein, Joel Beakey comments and says, The primary ground assurance is rooted in the promises of God but those promises must become increasingly real to the believer through the subjective evidences of grace and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, end quote. These believers were commended for the way that they served one another, that they served each other within the congregation. I mean, let's think for a moment all that goes in through the servant of the service of the saints here at Pacific Hope for us to gather just once a week here. So many of you are engaged in serving so that we can worship together on a Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning we have saints gathered in the back room over here for corporate prayer before service, praying for the service, and praying for you. We have those who serve us on Sunday in the music ministry, in the audiovisual ministry, in the greeting ministry, in the ushering ministry. We have those who right now are on alert out walking the premises on the security ministry, making sure that we are safe in here as we worship together. We have those who serve and care for our little ones. We have Sunday school teachers and helpers. We have those who diligently serve us every Sunday in the hospitality ministry so that we have a nice place to go and to fellowship together as they provide us refreshments every Sunday to enjoy. We have those who come in on Saturday to clean this facility and to prepare it, to get it ready for us to come in and to use on Sundays. We have those who lead us in the order of worship, those who prepare and stuff bulletins so they can be handed out to you, those who serve in our info booth, those who are behind the scenes during the week doing administrative work, and those who give generously to support the ministry and the work of the ministry here at Pacific Hope. That is only a partial list of the service of the saints here at Pacific Hope. Those are more in the line of a a formal ministry where they get involved in different ministries to make sure they're supporting our, our worship gathering together. But there is so much more. That as we gather together on Sunday, there is the one another ministry that takes place. The praying for one another. The encouraging one another. The strengthening one another by each other's faith. All of this is fueled by a love for God's name. And it is evidence of the work of God's spirit at work within each believer. Why would somebody not only want to come to church on Sunday, but why would they want to get here hours earlier? Why would somebody not only come to church on Sunday, but stay hours later? Why would somebody during the week be preparing for Sunday? Because of a love for God's name, because of a love that they have first been loved with, that they have experienced the love of Christ, and now out of love for him, they love his people. That is what the author of Hebrews is telling these believers, saying your performance is not perfect, but God's grace has sustained you. And his spirit is evident in your lives as you serve one another, as you are faithful to bless others. Look again at verse 10. The very beginning of verse 10, we jumped over it earlier, he said, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. When he says here that God is not unjust, he is By no means suggesting some type of works-based righteousness. We need to read that in context what was said earlier in verse 7, where that illustration about the land and the rain was recorded. Back in verse 7, he said, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Notice that it is the land that produces a useful crop that receives a blessing from God. Those who walk faithfully in love and good works will be rewarded. The Bible teaches us that he will reward us for what we do in this life. He righteously rewards those who do what pleases him. Which means this, beloved, how we live our lives matters. And God does not forget the righteous acts and the loving actions that are undertaken for others. And though having been saved by grace alone, apart from works, we are now called to works. And God, like any other loving father, will reward the works we do for him. A.W. Pink said this. He said, "Quote, what God rewards is only what he himself has wrought in us. It is the father's recognition of the spirit's fruit. It may look now as though God places a little value on sincere obedience to him, that in this world the man who lives for self gains more than he lives for Christ, yet in a soon-coming day it shall appear far otherwise." End quote. He who dies with the most toys does not win. That is a lie. And though the author here is commending them, these believers, for their love for God's name, that's demonstrated by their service to the other saints, he closes with a portion of exhortation. Verses 11 and 12, he says this, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. His entire point is to ensure that the believers possessed a full assurance of hope until the day they are with Jesus. And hope, by the way, is not wishing for the best. It's it's not wishful thinking, it is a confident expectation that g- what God has promised will indeed happen. And hope is rock solid and unshakable because it is rooted and it is grounded in the faithfulness of God. Unshakable. It is a blessing for God's people to possess a full assurance of hope. And in context, it is seeing his grace working through us, within us, giving us a desire and giving us the ability to serve others that brings this confidence, that validates this assurance of salvation. But like in every church There are those who excel in areas of service and those who need to be exhorted. There are those who need to learn to say no and those who need to be willing to say yes. There are those who are always looking for ways to serve and others who are always looking for ways to be served. Thus, the author of Hebrews exhorts them individually now and says, Each one of you. Before it was corporate and what they did, now it's individually. Each one of you, every single believer in the church, is to show the same earnestness, meaning the same eagerness, diligence, the same zeal in serving one another. He says that there shouldn't be any gaps in service. That everyone should be involved. By the way, this is not based upon personality types. So introverts, you do not get a pass. All believers, every single one is now in Christ and are to imitate him, to walk as he walked. It is through serving others like Christ that we experience a continual full assurance of hope. But the author says to be diligent, to be intentional in serving others, which means this, it's not just automatic. It's to put on this mindset. Even as you drive to a Sunday gathering, as we come to worship, to put on the mindset, and even the prayer of, Lord, grant me the heart to go in to serve your people today. Oh, how many of us will pray, open my ears to hear your truth, which is a good prayer. But we take it further. It's that we do something with that. And that we serve others. That we are diligent, intentional in serving others. You know, it's interesting that these believers are growing weary. They're growing weary. They're waning They're they're regressing in their faith. And yet he still tells them, be intentional. Be intentional in the way that you serve others. He says, fight. Fight the flesh. Fight the temptation to sneak into service and to sneak out of service. Fight the carnal desire to be served. And instead put on a Christ-like attitude to serve others. You know, the warning here that comes in this exhortation is that if we're not actively putting our faith into action through a selfless attitude of servanthood, he says we will become lazy in the faith. He uses the word sluggish. He warns them that they may not be sluggish. You know, sluggish service is thinking someone else will do it. Sluggish service, someone else will care for them. Someone else will bear their burden. Someone else will pray for them. Someone else will serve in that ministry. Sluggish service is thinking that someone else will do the good works that God has called me to do. Called you to do. And to that we all say, ouch. And just like There were those who were tempted to be sluggish saints nearly 2,000 years ago. There are sluggish saints within churches today. A healthy church is one where all the people serve all the people. It is a church where compassion and love exists for one another and is demonstrated through practical means. It is a church where devotion to god is demonstrated by devotion to one another by servanthood to one another the author of hebrews exhorts the believers to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises he'll teach us a lot more about this later in chapter 11 but he alludes to there now that we are to press on in the faith to be diligent and faithful like the saints that have gone before us to endure hardship and difficulty for the name of Christ while excelling in service. His point is to encourage perseverance. You know, the great enemy of perseverance is laziness. Believers are not to grow weary in doing good. We should never get to a point in our faith where we say, I used to serve a lot. But now that's for the new believers. That is the warning that he gives us here. It is against becoming sluggish in our faith that there needs to be a continual working out of our salvation, the sanctification and the good works that flow from our faith, that it is those that validate our assurance of hope. And so before we come to a close, now is a good time to stop and pause and to do a self-assessment. Oh, joy. Do I have to? Now's the time to stop and do some self-examination. First question is, do you have full assurance of hope? Do you have full assurance of Beloved, if you are here and you profess the name of Christ and you trust in what Christ has done upon the cross, that you have repented from sin and trusted in him alone, you have assurance of salvation. Not based upon your performance, but based upon his perfection. You have assurance. Now, is the evidence, the fruit that comes from your life, validating that assurance? Do you see your love for God flowing through you as you look forward to serving others within the church? Do you have the desire to please God by serving his people? Now, while I ask you all those questions, it is definitely important for us to do self-examination at times. But I would say we need to heed the counsel that Robert Murray McShane gave to his congregation when he said that, quote, They should take 10 looks at Christ for every look they take inside themselves. End quote. Take ten looks at Christ for every time you look within yourself. Why? Because you are imperfect. And this side of heaven, you will continue to be imperfect. But as you look to Christ, you see a perfect savior. And as you look to that perfect savior, Your love for him fuels your love for his people. But if all you do is look inwardly and say, woe is me, then what happens is a false humility and self-righteousness begins to breed in you, and you think, I surely should be better than this. No, we are sinners saved by grace. It is His grace that works within us to conform us continually into the image of His Son. So as you look within yourself and do that examination, lift your eyes to Jesus. See the finished work upon the cross, and may that be your fuel to respond to His love for you by loving His people. By keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus May it continue to make us humble before him and gentle and eager to serve him. I'll close with a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, he said, quote, This should be the sign by which they should know whether they are true Christians or not. Where Christ dwells through faith, there he makes that person conform to him. That is, he makes him humble, gentle, and ready to help his neighbor in any need. End quote. Before I close in prayer this morning, let's go ahead and bow our heads and let's think upon how God has ministered to us through his word this morning. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness, for your goodness towards us. We thank you for the work that you have begun in us and your faithfulness to complete it. Oh God, we ask that you would help us, help us from becoming lazy in our faith. Help us once again to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to be strengthened in the faith. May our love for your name be evidenced by the way that we eagerly serve and build up one another in the faith. To you be all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And all God's people say, amen. Let me close with a benediction from Ephesians chapter one, verses 18 and 19. May you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. God bless you all. You are the church. Spend some time stirring up each other to love and good works. We look forward to seeing you in the Fellowship Hall for a time of refreshments. God bless you all. Have a great week.